Now illuminate it to us. We're hungry, we're thirsty, and we um, don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We need you, Lord. Amen. Amen. I didn't choose this life. It chose me. I didn't choose this life. It chose me. Have you ever felt that way? When the trials come or pressures come or um, situations are difficult, do you ever just look around and say, hey, I didn't choose this. This chose me. Listen to what Sam, the companion of Frodo, says as they are... I'm just kidding. Test. There we go. I was getting excited for the Tolkien that's coming down. I know it's Hobbit, but I'm going to read a little bit from Lord of the Rings. This is from the, um, not from the movie, this is from the book. This is Sam sharing with Frodo, kind of, kind of reflecting on the story that they've found themselves placed in. He says this, We shouldn't be here at all. This is Sam speaking to Frodo. If we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo. Adventures, as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them. Because they were exciting and life was a bit dull. A kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered. Or the ones that stay in the mind. Folk seem to have been just landed in them. Folk seem to have been just landed in them. And so it is with you and me. We find ourselves in stories, sometimes good, but oftentimes those moments where we say, I didn't choose this life, it chose me. They're not as good. Have you been there? Have you ever felt that way? Or maybe you've had another thought. Maybe uh, a similar situation has presented itself. About a year ago, I, was, uh, I surprised myself by my own tears as I was sharing with my mentor, my pastor, Sean. Most of you know him. Sean Richmond is the president of our movement of churches. And um, I was just uh, feeling like, Sean, the hard thing about this job is it just seems to never end. And I want you to know, as I say this, I have the best job in the world. It's so good, I'm inviting many of you to do it with me in New England. I want many of you to, to pastor churches. But I said, the thing that's tough is when I put my head on the pillow at night, I can't always say, this is what I did today. Or I got this done. Or this is over here. And I think of my father-in-law, and uh, he's got so much joy, and he's so generous. And he, what he's done all his life for Boston Gas is he's dug ditches. So when he puts his head down on the pillow at night, he can say, I dug that ditch. I fixed that main. You know, we, we completed that job. And I, I had this kind of jealousy, a holy jealousy. I don't know if it was holy, actually. It's probably fleshly. <clears throat> it was a fleshly jealousy for man just to be able to say at night, it's over. Because I thought about our situation where I think, gosh, the Great Commission's pretty big. Let's say the harbor plants a church. Well, then we're going to want to plant another one. And then we've got to plant another one, another one. And I went down a little despair tunnel where I thought, gosh, when does it end? That was more of the symptom. As I reflected on my conversation with Sean, what I realized more was, you know what? It's more a sense of, um, not that it never ends, but that um, I wonder if I'm good enough for this. Have you been there? You wonder, am I good enough? I, I just realized I had tapped into a pervasive sense of, 
I'm not good enough for this task. I'm not good enough for that job. As I get before God, I just kind of a pervasive sense of, God, I'm not good enough for what you're calling me to do and be. I don't live there a lot, but that conversation kind of brought it up. In fact, the Reformation theologians, they had a, an illustration for this, that this pervasive feeling of not being good enough. And um, they said, it's kind of like you're a pitcher of water, right? Now, sin, the water's good. You're good. You're creating God's image. But sin is like a couple of drops of ink. I don't know if you can see that. But sin is like this ink in our sinfulness, our unworthiness. And just a little bit gets in there. Now, this is still good. It's still water. But the reality is sin has reached everywhere. It's in every, fi- excuse me, it's in every bit of our fiber, every place of our being. It's pervasive. And I think this is not an inaccurate picture. Our sinfulness, it is pretty pervasive. But I don't know that it's the whole story. I don't know that it's the whole balance of Scripture. And as we look at Zechariah, um, and we look at these two kind of ideas. One, hey, I didn't choose this story. I didn't choose this struggle. or I didn't choose this situation. It chose me. And this other situation of, gosh, am I good enough? I feel pervasively bad are pervasively not able to do or be all that God's called me to be, Zechariah comes in. and He speaks a beautiful word to us, one that we don't want to miss. And just so we can fully appreciate the context of Zechariah, who he is and what he steps into, and how similar I believe, these thoughts I've just shared with you, how similar they are to the situation of the Israelites in their moment, about 520 years before the birth of Christ. I just want to unpack that a little bit for us. Here's the context. When Zechariah speaks a word to you and to me and to the people about us feeling pervasively not good enough, or like we didn't choose this story, this is, this is the situation. It's, so just to do a little history, the people of Israel, covenant with God. God said, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. And just like you and just like me, they were not able to obey. God showed mercy time after time, but there finally came a time when God said, you've, you've got to receive the full force of, of, um, of just the, the, the penalty for your sins. What that looked like was the empire of Babylon took, destroyed Jerusalem and took the Israelites in exile to Babylon from Jerusalem. Now, some 70 years after that, the time was done. The, the payment for their sins was done. And how, what God did was through history, he brought, instead of the Babylonian empire, he raised up the Persian empire guy named Cyrus, then followed by Darius. And this Persian empire, they're way more religiously tolerant. And so they said, okay, Jews living in exile in Babylon, we actually want to let you go back to Jerusalem. It's actually pretty self-serving. I mean, Cyrus was a smart leader, leading now the, the biggest empire ever to exist in history to that time. It stretched so far, and nothing had been that big. But he, part of his desire to let religious people serve their gods was he kind of wrote this thing that said, hey, you go back to your gods and pray for me that I, that I succeed. And so it was kind of under that uh, dispensation that it happened. So the Jews come back to Jerusalem and they start rebuilding the temple because they just had an understanding that the purposes of God were going to come through the rebuilding of the temple. But that temple reconstruction gets halted along the way because of a variety of factors inside and outside. So then we have two prophets come on the scene. 
One of them is Haggai and one of them is Zechariah. And Haggai is the one whose main concern with rebuilding the temple is, we've got to rebuild this thing now. Like, let's, let's do this. Zechariah's concern is not just, hey, we need to rebuild this now, but it's because God's glory is going to come in ways bigger than even just the, interme- or the, um, the uh, earthly temple right here. So that's what we get from Zechariah. And as we start to read this uh, chapter 3 again, this is just one great night. Zechariah had an awesome night with the Lord, kind of like Kate. Actually, Kate Muckley, watch out. You have a Zechariah anointing on you. Because Zechariah went to sleep one night, and he got eight visions from God. Boom, boom, boom. An angel just brought him through some incredible stuff. That starts in Zechariah 1. By the time we get to Zechariah 3, this is the fourth of eight visions that he got that night. So let's start to unpack this. What is the good news for us? What is the good news for Israel in those moments when we feel like, God, I didn't choose this story. I didn't choose this struggle, right? Can you imagine the guys coming back from Babylon? Imagine being a Jew. You grew up in Babylon outside of your country. You've heard all this stuff about God's fame, and now you're allowed to go back to your home country. Uh, gosh, it just is a crazy story. I can think of many who would say, uh, I didn't really choose this. What are we doing here? You know, Or ones who thought, gosh, we got kicked out of Jerusalem 70 years ago because we were bad. Are we going to be good enough for God? Very similar concerns to you and me. This is the fourth vision that Zechariah gets. It says, Then he, and this is the angel, it's kind of the host angel, showing Zechariah all this cool stuff. Then he, Zechariah 3, 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now this is not Joshua that probably most of us are familiar with. Um, the Joshua who took over the land, that was several hundred years ago. This is just uh, of the leaders. Sorry, my, my cord is really bothering me right now. Um, <laughs> Am I? Uh, there we go. Uh, this is Zechariah. Uh, sorry, this is um, Zerubbabel is the leader of this group. And then Joshua is just the high priest of this group of guys who are repatriating Jerusalem. So the angel shows me Joshua the high priest, a contemporary of Zechariah, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, Joshua the high priest, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Wow. Wow. The high priest, he's a holy man. He's the holiest man there is in the group. And yet, God is showing to Zechariah that the high priest is a man snatched as fire. As, as a stick from a fire. He's He's snatched. And we see Satan. Does this remind you of Job 1 and Job 2? What does Satan do? Satan goes to and fro about the earth so that he can bring bad accusations against God's people up to God. And honestly, I think for us right here, one of the main things I want to communicate to you as we walk through this passage is, do you know that you're opposed? Do you know that some of the bad things that you go through, do you know those moments when you say, I'm not good enough? Or the moments that you say, man, this is the story I chose. There's a whisper coming to you and guess who it's from? That whispers the devil. His name means accuser. What he's doing constantly, day in and day out, in the masquerading as the first person. Sometimes you say, I this, I that. That's the, that's the enemy whispering to you. Let's not lose sight of the fact that we are opposed. That there is an enemy dead set against you, especially because you're a child of God. 
right? Satan knows he's going to hell. Okay, let's just remember our theology of hell. Hell wasn't created for you and me. Hell was created for, the, for Satan and his angels. And he's going there, and he's just going to try to get as many people as he can. And if he can't get you, then he's going to try to mute your calling. He's going to try to quench you out, make you not effective. He's accusing you like he accused Joshua, the high priest. But God steps in as the advocate, and what does he say? He says, hey, Jerusalem, I've chosen you. Meaning, I've chosen all of you. And you can know that God's chosen you. If you're here today and you love Jesus, you can know that God has chosen you. Now, this is radical. This is 500 years before Jesus Christ came. And God's starting to give a clue as to his solution for our problems of A, feeling like, how do I get in this story? Or B, I just don't feel worthy. I don't feel good enough. Let's keep reading. Verses 3 to 5. Now Joshua, this high priest, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Yeah, we could just end right there and that would be an awesome gospel story. That Jesus takes away our filthy clothes. Isn't that great? He wants to take away our filthy clothes being our sinfulness, being this state that we find ourselves in. We're kind of utterly depraved. As our friends from the Reformation have made it very clear, we do have ink. We're blotted. Our motives are often just a mess. But the good news is, Jesus, this is prophetically speaking of Jesus, wants to take away your filthy garments. Amen. Let's have communion. That's great. Should we stop there? Oh, it gets better. Hold on. It gets better. This is a good gospel we preach. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and, everyone say and, and I will put rich garments on you. He doesn't just take away our sin and leave us naked. He gives us rich garments. Then I said, this is now Zechariah kind of jumps in the vision here. Then I said, ooh, he gets excited. Whoa, let's put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, they, why did Zechariah jump into this vision and start to mess with it a little bit? The high priest, if you can think of like the Pope or any of your historical churches, bishops get a hat. That turban, that mitre is a symbol of the, the authority of the high priest. It's a symbol of his ability to minister before God. And so we hear in Zechariah saying, hey, make sure he's got a turban on his head. Make sure that he's got... The mitre, he's saying, you know, let him be restored to his full priestly duty. Isn't that wonderful? So what that means for you and for me is those moments when I kind of uh, crawl on all fours into my quiet time saying, God, do you love me still? You know, I know that I'm clothed in the same authority that God is. God has let me enter into his presence because God gives me that mitre. He gives me that turban. He allows me to be in his presence. As Joshua the high priest was allowed to be in his presence as the high priest. He clothes us with the rich garments. In other words, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. It's not, you're not just zeroed out. When you come to Jesus, when we take communion today. We don't just get zeroed out and say, oh, thank God that I'm forgiven. But not only that, but a miracle of all miracles. The righteousness of God is imparted to you. Do you know that God calls us he calls us not just that we don't just have the righteousness of Christ. We are the righteousness of Jesus. 
no, we don't deserve that. We often don't act like it, but more and more we do. And more and more we are. Amen? So God gives you rich garments. And that's why Paul, in his, in his letters to the church, is always saying, clothe yourselves with Christ. Put on Christ. I think he's got Zechariah 3 in mind, honestly. Remember, this is Old Testament. Some of you guys say, I don't like the old. I say, you should read it. Because this is good, right? 520 years before Jesus shows up, we're getting this vision. God's giving us a clue what he wants to do with your heart and my heart. He wants to clean it. He wants to allow us to be in the Lord's presence. He wants to give us the righteousness of Christ. So that's why I say, the Lord's new clothes, they're good enough for me. Okay? The Lord's new clothes, what he gives me, they're good enough for me. I can stand in his presence, say, God, I'm loved. I'm enjoyed. You love me. The Lord's new clothes, they're good enough for me. Why don't you say that with me? The Lord's new clothes, they're good enough for me. You just received that today. Oh, again, we could close shop and just take communion right now. But guess what? It gets better. Come on, this gets better. Verse 6. This is where I know that God actually likes me. Not just, he, just, he doesn't just tolerate me. God likes me. Guess what? He likes you. You know, Kate mentioned that she has a few songs with Jesus. She knows that God delights in her. Guess what? God delights in you. This is how I know, too. I might not have three songs with Jesus like Kate does, but I got verses 6 and 7 right here. Now, let's read them. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. I don't know if we are clued into the, what this invitation is, this intimacy that's being given by God to Joshua the high priest. So like JD, our son, he's three years old now, he is able on his own accord to open the refrigerator. We have a Brita, you know, one of the big Britas that has a spigot. So he can now... Turn on the spigot and fill his cup with water. So I'll tell you, one of the things that gets him so fired up is if we have a guest at the house and I say, J.D., can you go get so-and-so some water? Well, he's so excited about that. He heads over to the refrigerator, opens it up, gets the cup, because the cups we have some cups down low so he can get them, turns on the spigot, can turn off. He brings it. Because I've just invited him into, hey, will you do something that I normally do? I usually get this guest some water. Can you do it? And he's just all excited. He's got value imparted to him. He's useful. Or as Thomas the Train says, you know, he's a really useful engine. <laughs> he's been really useful. And it's awesome. That's one of the best ways that you can communicate love for someone is by letting them into something that's important to you. When I was in seventh grade, my choir director, who's actually now at Gordon College, if any music guys are taking a class from Faith Luth, I was a part of Faith Luth's master's project. Her master's project was to say that she could do a boy choir in a public school. Usually boy choirs are done at parochial schools. But we were her master's thesis. So I was in her boy choir. And one day, just for fun, I really enjoyed this one piece that we, that we sang. And so just for fun, because this is the way I thought, I just analyzed that piece. Meaning I just wrote down like, Okay, here's section A, here's section B, here's section C. This is what's happening here, what here. You know, here's what's happening melodically, harmonically. Here's what's happening in the key, because I just was that way. <clears throat> well, she loved that. I just did it for fun, because I, I just love this piece. It was a Bach um, cantata. 
And uh, she just thought it was so great. You know what she did? She said, you know what? I want you to conduct the choir when we do this concert. I said, are you kidding me? This is wonderful. And, uh, you know, we used to have this little picture of little 13-year-old Neil conducting the boy choir. And, man, it was just so much fun. And the same thing would happen later when I was drum major of the marching band. And the band director said, you practice them. And then a few years later, when a pastor named Sean Richmond would say, I want to plant this church, but I, I can't. Will you do it for me? I said, wow, you're, you're trusting me. Because I know Sean, when he first started to be up here on the North Shore to see this thing get started, it was his baby. He was sacrificing a lot. Mostly he was sacrificing Sunday, afternoon, Sunday afternoons with his family to, to birth this church. And he let me in and say, do this. And that's what God wants to do with you. In your vocation, in your family, in your ministry, in the gifts that God's given you, he wants to let you govern his house. He wants to give you authority. That's why trials come. That's why there's hardship, because he's shaping your character. Because one day... And we're on the way now. He wants to give you increasing authority now. And then when you step into heaven, God wants to give you cities and things to be in charge of. I don't know how it's all going to look. But scripture gives us clues that he just wants to impart more authority to you. Amen? Amen. So this is awesome stuff. And again, 500 years before Jesus comes, these guys are thinking, are we going to be pleasing to God? And God's saying, yes, I've got clean garments for you. And I want to let you into who I am and what I'm doing. Will you join me? There couldn't be a more awesome invitation. Lord's new clothes are good enough for me. Let's go on. And here we get to some fun stuff. Ready for a little fun? Okay, this is fun. I think the Bible is fun. Verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm giving you a clue as to what I want to do on the earth today to save men's souls. I am going to bring my servant, the branch, capital B. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Well, this is getting fun. This is getting vision. This is getting a little cryptic. Let's see if we can unlock this a little bit with the scripture. So, we have this word that a branch is coming. Well, just take a wild guess of who that might be. Some of you guys have been reading some commentaries, I can tell. Good. All right. There's two other places in Scripture that mention a branch. And they're both prophetic books. Isaiah is one who mentioned the branch. And he says it in this context. This is great. Actually, John Prickett opened this up to me. He's a famous pastor. Some of you might know him. But... <laughs> John, John opened up this to me regarding the branch in Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, there's a refrain. And the refrain is, it's not a happy refrain, it's a sad refrain. Isaiah 9, it says, um, it just is saying what God's situation is against Israel, that he's kind of ticked off that they've disobeyed. And so four times in Isaiah 9 and 10, he says, Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. In other words, he's saying, hey, yeah, Israel's paid this way, they've paid that way, they've done this, I've punished them this way. But over and over again, it's not enough. The refrain is, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is still upraised. And then, ooh, it's just getting really oppressive reading 9 and 10, and you're like, oh gosh, I hope this gets better. Then you get to Isaiah 11, and it says that a branch will come, it says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. So out of this lineage, 
From these roots, a branch will bear fruit. Then it says awesome things. It says the spirit of the Lord will be on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's a sevenfold thing happening here. That when this branch comes, he'll have the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. I don't know exactly what they all are, but it sounds exciting to me. Sounds good to me. And it's after the branch comes in Isaiah 12, where finally, like a big sigh of relief, it says, although the, the prophet Isaiah says, although you were very angry with me, your anger's turned away and you've comforted me. In other words, this branch is going to be the very thing that takes away the wrath of God and there's something kind of sevenfold about him that is wonderful. Now, the other place that we see branch is in Jeremiah. And I want to read from Jeremiah 23. It says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, capital B, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. In other words, our righteousness, you know, Isaiah says that our righteousness, yours and mine, is like filthy rags. Actually, he says something worse than that. I won't share what it is. I'll let you go to find the translation. All right? But our righteousness is like filthy rags. But he's saying that the name by which the branch will be called is the Lord, our righteousness. In other words, your and my, our right standing before God is because of God himself. Now, let's go back to Zechariah and look at this kind of mysterious thing he said. Verse 8 again. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Now, see the stone I have set in front of Joshua. Or it's in front of the high priest I've set a stone. Who do you think this stone is? Someone's read some commentaries, I believe. (laughs) Take a wild guess. He's famous. He's the son of God. There we go. Okay. Thank you, all right? Because, so, I mean, Psalm 118 says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. Jesus said that about himself, right? He said, the stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. That's me, right? All the people rejected me, the, the, the religious leaders, but I am the capstone. I'm the key to this whole thing. Okay, what do we learn about this stone? There are seven eyes or seven facets on that stone. Interesting. Well, what did we just read in Isaiah 11? That God's going to raise up a branch, and there's going to be this sevenfold thing. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Just give us a little clue. There's this awesome Jesus coming, Son of God. And it says, I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. Now again, I, this, is, this, is, this is Hubacher right now. This is not a commentary. This is nothing else. But when I look at that and I think, what could that inscription be? I think back to Jeremiah 23, the other time that we learned that that the branch was coming. And I think that inscription on that stone is, guess what? The Lord, our righteousness. You can disagree. We'll find out in heaven. I could be wrong. When I think about this stone that's been placed before the high priest, I think that's Jesus. The seven eyes, the seven facets are the sevenfold spirit of God that we see in Isaiah 11 and then is recapitulated actually in the book of Revelation. And what's that inscription on the stone? I think it's the Lord, our righteousness, meaning God is our righteousness. I don't have to try to earn his favor anymore. It's his righteousness that makes me right with him. And isn't that great? I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Well, gosh, when did that happen? Yeah, 
There is a day when the Son of God was murdered on a tree. But that's the day that all of your sins and all my sins. You know, there's more people on the planet today than there ever have been in the history of Earth. The eight or so billion people on the planet, the population has never been greater. And all of the history up to now, we've not had this many people. But on the planet today are more people than have ever lived. And in that moment on Calvary, Jesus took all the sins, you and me, on that day. In a single day, he did it. And then I love this little epilogue verse here. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. You know, some of you are pretty discouraged, specifically in how you relate to other people. And, you know, when we're insecure, we withdraw or we'll assign blame or falsely accuse others. We just have problems in our relationships often. But look at how this goes. When we get right with God, right, then we're able to be right with others. I know you probably don't have a vine sitting around or a fig tree, but the picture is there is that you, when you're right with God, when you've received this truth for yourself, that you have clean garments and he's given you the turban, which means you can be in right relationship with God and you can pray for others even though your life isn't perfect, then right relationship happens with other people. Then there's peace and concord in your relationships. Your motives are clean. You're not a, get, a taker from other people, but you're a giver. You're inviting them into this, that, or the other. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The Lord's new clothes are good enough for me. Are they good enough for you? We're about to partake of communion. And as we do, I just invite you on these two ideas. The first idea of, hey, I didn't choose this story. It chose me. If there's something about your circumstances that you find difficult, something about your situation that you find hopeless or bring you to despair, I just invite you to ask God, according to the scripture we've just read, Lord, what does obedience look like for me? Because I know that you're wanting to share with me some authority. You're trying to increase my influence. So God, what does it look like for me to obey in this situation? Secondly, if you find yourself in your own thoughts, you know, when you're just kind of chilling with yourself, you find that pervasive sense of, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I, I don't belong or um, that sort of thought. Please take heed to this word, which is the vision is true. God gives you new garments. He gives you the turban. He has washed you. That's the good news. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's an essay of his called The Weight of Glory on this, on this very thing. He says, It is written that we shall stand before him. We shall appear. We shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination. We shall find approval. We shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. Isn't that an awesome turn of phrase? You are a real ingredient in the happiness of God. You're not insignificant. But to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in her work, or a father in his son, 
It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. You're going to pass inspection because you're going to be wearing the righteousness of Christ. This is a miracle. Can we just think what the alternative would have been? I mean, there's moments, you know, because I know especially we live in the church, we forget. The alternative is me and you stuck in our bondage and our darkness without any hope whatsoever. That really is the end of where we'd be headed. But Jesus interrupted. He interrupted. He came in. And uh, I love Zechariah's little clue he gave 520 years before Jesus' arrival. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to take care of that nagging feeling of unworthiness. That's how I'm going to take care of the fact that you're in a situation which is a mess. I'm going to redeem you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts. The, the sign we have of this is communion. I'm going to invite you to walk with me through the communion liturgy together. Why don't you guys stand? And if you can direct your eyes to the screen, we'll be doing this liturgically. And I'll invite those who are serving communion to please come forward. Holy Spirit, we invite you here and call to mind and make real to us how it's because of Jesus that we get clean garments and the turban and that you invite us into your, your story and your adventure. In Jesus' name. The Lord be with you and also with you. We lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and of earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death and the grave and by his glorious resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels, truly, and with all the company of heaven who forever Sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your holy name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy, awesome, gracious, wonderful Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen to sin and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of us all. Jesus stretched out his arms upon the cross. He offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. And on the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ, he took bread. We didn't give him thanks to you. He broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
So together we proclaim this mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, recalling Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We offer you these gifts. And I encourage you now to extend your hands towards the elements. So we want to pray that something special happens here today. We pray, Lord, that you'd sanctify this bread and this grape juice by your Holy Spirit to be for us, your people, the body and the blood of your Son the holy food and drink of new and unending life in Him. Sanctify us, which means consecrate. Set us apart, Lord. Set us apart so that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve You in unity, one body, and constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all Your saints into the joy of Your eternal kingdom. We're asking this through Your Son, Jesus Christ, by Him and with Him and in Him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, All honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. At this time, I'll invite you to come at will, but down the middle aisles. And please uh, take of the elements. We have a gluten-free option is on your right. And hold on to them, because we'll take them together once we all have them.